Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Fitter and Faster Coaches Corner. I'm your host, as always, Mike Murray. Today, I have my good friend with me, a colleague who I've bounced ideas off for several years now, somebody that I connected with early on during the pandemic to kind of catch up on what each other were doing. McGee Moody, the head coach of the University of South Carolina for many years, who recently announced that he's going to be taking a step back focusing a little bit more on family life. And I'm just so lucky that we were able to, to catch you here after what's been a busy couple of weeks for you. I am thrilled to have you on the program, McGee. Welcome. Thank you, man. I, I appreciate it. And um, like I said, I, I, enjoy, I enjoy doing this. I love talking about swimming. I love talking about athletes and, and how to make them better. And, uh, and I love hanging out and talking with you. So this is kind of the best of, of all of it. So I appreciate you asking me to be on. And I'm looking forward uh, to the time we've got McGee, you've had an incredible career coaching at a lot of different places. When we were talking about what our topic was going to be this week, we had a couple different ideas. The first one that you went to was finding your why as a coach. Why is it that people are drawn to this profession? And what keeps us motivated for so many years working with young people and helping to teach them that swimming is a vehicle for success in so many other phases of our life, not just in terms of a athletic career? You know, I think the interesting thing about it, when you say find your why, it's so different for everyone. And for me, uh, one of the reasons why, you know, I've honed in on it so much is because mine evolved, um, drastically evolved over 25 years of coaching all the way back, um, you know, to when I was at East Carolina University as a, a brand new assistant coach. And uh, and was given the opportunity there by Rick Kobe to stay on and, and coach once I finished swimming uh, to, to this past year dealing with a pandemic and an SEC program and athletes that were preparing for the Olympics. And, and that why um, is very different now than when I was 22 years old. And, and so I think the interesting thing and what I like to talk about with this is, is the, the foundational beliefs that kind of laid the groundwork for that why, even though it evolved, um, the foundational beliefs that laid the groundwork for that why and, and how it changed from um, just being a 22-year-old cutthroat, getting kids to NCAAs. And me and Mark Bernardino used to joke when, when he was on staff with me, we used to joke about um, in our younger years, we would have pushed our grandmother down the stairs to get a win. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's, it, it, you joke about that, but when we're when I was young, that, that was it, man. Uh, the the hours that I put in at Navy, the time I spent with Bill Roberts and Lee Lawrence, it was about winning. But as I progressed through my career, that changed, and it was always important, and will always be important to me because that's just how I was raised. That's my personality. But um, it started to to kind of change and evolve to a way that um, when I was younger, winning was about me. I think in in a very transparent sort of way. It was about me. If my athletes were winning, then I was winning. And that, uh, and it kind of changed. And it, the, the focus shift from me to them and being able to help them develop as an athlete and even more importantly, develop them as a person and having their parents trust me over that four years that they're with our program to help them grow and continue to foster the characteristics that their parents have put into them um, as they were growing up. Um, you know, and, and working a lot, you know, Jeff Raker, Jeff, Jeff played an integral part in my, you know, my development as a coach over the last few years and, you know, really kind of honed in on, on, on what my why was. And, and as they, you know, as I kind of pulled more towards that athlete, um, it became more about helping them and, and being bigger than their problem. So when they needed something, they could come to coach and coach could help them. Coach could walk them through those things, and and now ultimately, um, you know, to 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 bringing out those athletes, you know, after their career and having them ready to go out into the world and use the resources that the University of South Carolina gave them to go out and be successful. Um, and so the evolution was was really interesting in ter in terms of my why. I really love that response because you touch on so many things that young coaches or coaches who are earlier in their career are always thinking about how do I get that athlete to the next level? You know, mm -hmm. at our club level, it's how do we score in the top 25 at junior nationals? How do we score in the top 10 at nationals? 
how do we take 10 kids to Olympic trials? And mm -hmm. that becomes consuming in every way possible. It comes consuming of our time, consuming of the material that we expose ourselves to. I had to find the next best set. I had to find out who was writing the greatest workouts. Mm -hmm. It was less about developing people and more about developing, as my friend Mark Hesse says, the almighty fast swim, right? <laughs> that's, right. What we're, that's what we're searching for, especially early on. And then you, be, you, you start to realize that that becomes a little bit self-fulfilling. All right, we're getting kids to this level. We're kicking butt. We're doing all these great things. But who am I? Who am I to my family? Mm -hmm. What do I project every day, right? And as, as I say these things, I know that you're thinking that sounds like Jeff Raker questions. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, who, who am I projecting every day? And you touched on, you started to become a little bit more reflective and cognizant of that. So what are some steps that help keep you motivate, motivated or focused on developing the athletes and not necessarily worrying about the next almighty fast swim? Um, I think the first thing to remember is uh, the almighty fast swim is an offshoot of pouring into your athletes. I don't think, I don't think you get the almighty fast swim without that other, that other facet. And that's what I started to realize as you know, when I coached at Navy, um, I, I worked under, under Bill Roberts and I worked under Lee Lawrence and I had the ability as an assistant coach really to hone in on the fast swim. And the, you're, you're more relational as an assistant coach than you are as a head coach. You're able to, to, to strengthen those per interpersonal relationships better um, than you are in a head coaching role because the head coaching role, whether it be club or whether it be um, college, is so it has such a huge umbrella that it's really hard to hone in on the individual, but as an assistant coach, you can hone in on the fast swim. And so my transition from being an assistant to being a head coach, I tried to carry as much as that of that with me. And I started to realize that if that connection with that athlete is not there, the almighty fast swim is never going to show up. Uh, it doesn't matter how talented they are that you have to have that, it, whatever it is, like you have to find that thing with that athlete that, links them together. We have a young man uh, that used to swim for me at South Carolina, Will Riggs. And our thing was, was UFC. Every day we were talking UFC. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll use Mark Bernardino and his example a lot through this, but Mark Bernardino and Finn Maynooth and Rafa Devia, their thing was soccer. And the interesting that, thing that I found out later is that Mark didn't even like soccer. The only reason he followed soccer was so he could connect with Finn and Rafa. And it, it's, that, it's that relationship that you build with that athlete that opens that door to trust that when you lay down sets that kids don't like, um, the painful, the, 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 just the, the gut-wrenching sets that some of them like it, and, and those, those kids are really fun to coach, but the, you know, th those kind of sets, it is that relationship that carries them to that point where they buy in, where they go, you know what, I trust coach. I trust, I don't, I don't like this. This is terrible, but I trust coach. And he, he's always, he knows me. He knows what's going to make me better. He knows what I'm going to respond well to. Let's get after it. And, and I think the, the important thing for a young coach to remember is that the, the almighty fast swim is, is not, not necessarily the goal. It's the, it's the result. It's the, it's the offshoot of that strong relationship that you have with your athletes. Um, and, and some are easier than others. Uh, some of those, some of those relationships are really tough. Like they're some, you know, the older I get, the harder it is. I mean, like you start talking about recruiting with some college coaches. Now we're recruiting juniors that are 16 years old. You know, I can't relate to a 16 year old. <laughs> like it's hard to, you know, I've got four daughters and, and I, I have trouble relating with the things they go through. Um, uh, but I think that's, that's the main thing on that is that that almighty fast swim that coaches are ultimately chasing, they have to understand that there's a path to get there and you won't get there unless you go through that athlete and build that trust. And it takes time. Um, and, and it takes some ups and downs. It takes some happy moments and it takes some hard moments to get to that point. You have this tremendous perspective now looking at your career 
all the places you've been, all the great kids that you've been fortunate to work with, all of the great coaches that you've been fortunate to work with. If you're writing a letter to a younger Moody in year yeah. one or two of coaching, what's going to be the underlining theme there? Be successful at the things that matter. I love it. Don't, don't waste your time walking down a path that won't be fruitful. That's what I would have told myself at 22 because I felt like I focused on a lot of things that were irrelevant then. And, and, you know, it's funny because throughout my career, I've really kind of laid into these foundations that, that helped me see what my why was and, and the why always changed, but the foundations never did. Thank goodness. Uh, there's, there were some things that, that I, I refused to sacrifice, whether, no matter how big the job, whether I was a first year assistant at East Carolina University who had no idea what I was doing, or whether I've been coaching for 25 years, you know, and, and 14 years in the SEC, uh, those foundations never changed. So I think focusing on and trying to be successful at the things that matter, uh, that's, that's what I would have told myself 25 years ago. And how did you impart some of that perspective on some of the younger assistants that you've had over the years? I, I try to lead by example. My, my leadership strategy is one, um, I don't know if you've ever read the book uh, by Jocko Willink, Extreme Ownership. I have it right sitting on my coffee table right over here. It's, 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 it's might be the best, that one and Dichotomy of Leadership are two of the best leadership books I've ever read. I, I think my, my, my leadership strategy over the years have, has changed in that I always tried to, when I was a younger head coach, I felt like I needed to have my thumb on everything. Um, and, and again, it, it was, you know, not, not, in, not like in a, a, an overbearing way, but I needed to know, I needed to be the one making the final call. I needed to be the one making the final decision. And, and what I started to see, just like that relationship with the athletes, is that the more freedom that you give those coaches, um, the more ownership they feel like they have, the harder they're going to pour into the program because it's more of their own. And so that while that, you know, I, I teach them how to do their job and then I let them do it. Um, you know, I, I, there's, you know, look, I, I, I hired Mark Bernardino. I, there's nothing I was going to teach Mark Bernardino. Um, matter of fact, I learned a lot from Mark Bernardino. <laughs> um, but the younger coaches that come in or younger coaches that sit down, you know, when we go to a convention or when I go to recruit and, you know, we go to dinner, you know, you know how it is. You go to dinner with coaches and uh, you go out and, and, and you have a, a drink at night or something like that. And you sit down and you're talking and, you know, that that evolution of teaching those young coaches through these conversation and then giving them the freedom to exercise that. Um, you know, I think um, they're having that ability to make those decisions and not be afraid uh, actually, I was listening to a podcast yesterday. Dan Crenshaw uh, was talking about his staff that works with him in Washington. He's a congressman in Texas. Uh, and, and he had said there's such a fine line in leadership that you need to create an environment where your staff feels comfortable coming to you with anything. But at the same time, they know that when, when your no is on the table, that your no is your no. Like that's your final answer. And, and, and he said that's a very fine line. And that's where I tried to get to is that the things that I had to lay down those, those hard answers on, I would do that. But, you know, in terms of a day-to-day a, a -day operation and, uh, you know, Mark Bernardino is going to take that, that, uh, that distance group and he's going to run with them. Mike Simpson is going to take that sprint group and he's going to run with them. Um, you know, and I don't need to see every workout that they write out. I trust those guys. And again, it's that release relationship that you try to build. If they know that I trust them, they're going to they're going to feel a little more freedom to try some new things. Um, and so I, I think that's a big part of it. And, and that evolved as well. You know, I, I learned lessons all along the way of what worked and what didn't work. Um, I learned lessons from the coaches that I worked for of what worked and what didn't work. So uh, I think that's a that big thing that the evolution, just as your wisdom increases, uh, that evolution takes over a little bit. It's great to hear how some of your experiences shaped kind of the way that you approached your staff. And, you know, you mentioned Dan Crenshaw, another former Navy SEAL, 
you know, those guys are so good at making leadership decisions. And then you, you mentioned somebody who's very popular in this house and, and in our life and Mark Bernardino and, you know, obviously the job yeah. he did with uh, Michaela at NC State was phenomenal. Um, and, and he was my mentor's mentor. So, you know, you've been really uh, aware of what great people can do for you inside of your program and not be afraid as a head coach in the SEC to see this amazing free agent who just left this powerful ACC program and say, Mark, come join us. You know, I can, I can move my ego aside and bring one of the legends in our sport onto your staff. What, what, what were your athletes' response to that? I mean, I think you got so much respect in our community for welcoming a name like that into your program. To me, I saw it as opportunity. Uh, it, it was never, you know, I don't know. My, my, my ego was never, I, I was never threatened by that. Mark and I, right from the beginning, we've always, you know, Mark, Mark is the kind of guy who he's never met someone he doesn't love, get along with, and can have an hour-long conversation with. So Mark and I, right off the bat, um, kind of struck it off. It was never about my ego. It was about making our program better. And what I saw was, here's Mark Bernardino. This dude's going to make our program better. <laughs> uh, and and I, I, I jumped on it. You know, I actually had some conversations with Joel Shenefield, um, and I was at NCAAs, and I, <laughs> it, was, it was prelims of the women's meet and I was on the phone with Mark uh, and I was down in the warm down into the pool trying to trying to lock him in to come coach with us and you know I had like four heats before I had an athlete and I told Mark I said bro we're on, we're on a timeline here I got I gotta be quick but you know it, it's it was it was about opportunity it was is this going to make our program better the answer was without question um, and every try, every hire I've ever made has been about that. It, it, it's not been about, can I tell this guy what to do? Or can I tell this lady what to do? Or can I tell this young man what to do? It was never about that. Um, it was about what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What are our program strengths and weaknesses? Does one benefit the other? Um, and, you know, I, I think when you evaluate those, um, Mark and I, we'll have a bond that won't ever be broken. He, he can, you know, he told me the other day he considers me family. So, so, you know, it, it's, that's the kind of thing you want from your staff. You want, you want that sort of relationship. As long as you, you uh, root for Philly sports, you know, you'll, right? get, you'll get along. Right. <laughs> I got to Look, let me tell you something. You knew how Monday's practice was going to go based on whether or not he walked in in a Phillies Jersey on Monday or not. <laughs> you knew that every, every week. Talk to me a little bit, McGee, about how you started to balance, you know, your responsibilities as the head coach of a major program in a major conference and being a father and a husband and somebody who I know is deeply rooted in faith. Yeah. How did, yeah. How, how did you balance those things? You know, it's funny you said that because when you and I started talking about this, I went back and I have a, a piece of paper here that is now 15 years old. And I, I sat down the week before I took the South Carolina job because I, I viewed it. I didn't know really what to expect. I was coming from the College of William and Mary in Virginia. We had just won a, a conference championship, the first one in the program's history with the women. The men were on the rise. And all I had ever heard, you know, the, the, the SEC that I knew was Jack Bowerly and David Marsh and John Trimbley and Ray Buzzard. And, you know, all these Greg Troy and all these guys, legends. And that was the SEC that I knew. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to have to step up my game. I'm going to have to be better. I'm going to have to work harder because these guys, obviously, they work harder. Now, look, I've learned a lot. And I've gotten to know those men very, very well. And some of them are some of my best friends now. And, and I, I know that, that you know, they, they would look back on their career and say very much the same thing. When I went into this, I was like, I got to be better. I got to work harder. I got to go. I, I, no sleeping. I've got to recruit. There's people somewhere that need to talk. You know, and that was my mindset. However, there were some things that I, were not, I, was not going to, I was not going to compromise. And I wrote them down. And this is, this is that sheet of paper right here. I don't know if you can read it. Um, but it says, non-negotiables. 
I'll never sacrifice one, my faith, two, my family, and three, my morals. And then down below, it said to win in this job. And, and I've, I've kept that with me for forever since, since that, since 14 years ago, it's been in my office and in that order. And, and by faith, I mean, you know, that's where I anchor my hope. So, you know, when I say, oh, man, I hope we get through this week, I'm not just throwing a wish up to the stars. You know, I'm, I, that's where my, my hope is rooted. My family, which is uh, the most important thing on this earth to me, my wife and my four daughters, uh, and then my morals, meaning I'm not going to break rules. My family didn't raise me that way. Um, I, I'm not going to cheat. I'm going to, if, if we're going to win, I'm going to do it honestly. And, and those were the three things that I, I refused to compromise. And so that was my groundwork for stepping into the job at the University of South Carolina. That was, that was the foundation um, that I was going to operate off of. And there, there might be some things that um, were added to that list or moved around, but those three never changed. Um, we, were gonna, we were gonna run a clean program. We were gonna do it by the rules. If there was a question of whether or not, uh, you know, something was ethical, we wouldn't do it. Like it just wasn't gonna happen. Um, and then, you know, my, my family is, is you know, it, coaching is time consuming, you know this. And, and I'll be honest with you, uh, there's, always, there's always that thought of the club coach and the college coach, you know, thought process. They're both, in my opinion, some of the most stressful jobs that you can have. And they're, they're different in that, I'll be honest with you, I don't know how the club coaches do it, man. You guys, are, you guys are on the move every weekend of the year. I don't know how you do it. Um, and the flip side of that is with college coaches, we're recruiting all the time. Um, we're on the phone or we're at a club or we're at a meet or we're, you know, it's always going on. And so my family, honestly, that's all they've ever known. I mean, that, my wife married me. I was a coach. So that's all she's ever known. But, you know, it, it started to, I had to really keep that in check. And there were some times where I had to pull myself back and go, okay, I'm, I'm getting in this too deep. You know, I, I'm starting to be blinded by that goal of the almighty fast swim and, you know, I, you know, my, my, my oldest daughter's 21 years old and I've been home for two of her birthdays and yeah, and it, it will, it will stop you in your tracks when you, when you think about that. And I remember having the conversation with Greg Troy and Greg told me one time, this is right after he retired. This is literally four days after he retired. And I said, if you, ever, you know, what would you have done differently? And, and he said, without, without hesitation, he said, I would have taken one weekend a month off completely. I would have gone off the grid and I would have spent it with my family. And he said, I, I feel like, I feel like I, I miss my kids growing up. And, and he said, that's not okay. And he, and, and he told me, he said, look, don't, don't do that. And I think that might've been really a point in my life. That conversation was a point in my life where I was like, you better be hypersensitive to this because you'll never get this time back with your kids. Like you, once it's gone, it's gone. Like you don't get that again. You can complain about changing diapers all you want. You don't get that time again. So that, that to me was something that always, that always struck with me. Um, but those three things were my foundation, man. That's where, that's where I started the university of South Carolina job and started trying to build off of those three things. I, that Greg Troy story is, is something that he shared with me too. And, uh, you know, it's something that I'm, I'm trying to get to the point where we can do that here. And, you know, you just met Dan Burke, and I think he'll be a big part in helping us get to that point. But right. it, it resonates. It resonates deeply with club coaches. And it's a perfect segue in, into our next question, which you and I talked about in pre-production. Here you are. You have this wonderful career for so many years. You've been on U.S. national team staffs. You had athletes compete at the Olympic games. Now you're stepping back from coaching. What does that look like for you? What went into some of the thought process there? Um, you know, you're, you're very well liked by everybody in the swimming community. And it's been such an integral part of your life. Where is this journey taking you now? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I think what it was, and I'll, I'll just kind of tell you how, how I, came to this point is it started a few years back and I remember thinking I, I sat down and talked with my wife Monica and I said I don't know how much longer I can keep up 
this pace. And this was coming off of a time where um, for, for college coaches, the month of February, um, February, March, uh, and then April, April used to be a time that you kind of got to relax with the new recruiting rules. That's not really the case anymore, but February and March, um, there were a couple of months there within the last five, six years where I might be home three, four days. And it, it was taking a toll on my wife and it was, my kids were missing out and I was missing out. And I remember, I remember our conversation and I said, I don't know how much longer I can keep up this pace. And that was kind of the starting point for me saying, okay, I need to really evaluate where I am. Um, and, you know, we came into this year and the pandemic knocked everybody for a loop. Uh, it, it, just thinking back to this time last year, and honestly, thinking back to, you know, January of, of 2020, how naive we all were uh, as this all started. Uh, but, but the things that coaches have had to face and undergo, we had to, we had to reimagine everything about our sport. Um, Mike, I saw videos of you, man, standing out on a pool deck with snow. I saw you out in a boat so your kids could train. Like we had to reimagine everything about how we operated. And it's exhausting um, because, you know, half of the decisions that you make are wrong. And then from those decisions come 25 more questions that have to be answered. And the, you wanted to be that anchor point. Like for me, I wanted to be bigger than the problem for my athletes, right? So that was my why. And, and, and I, I, I couldn't provide that for them. And it was exhausting. And so um, went through last year and then came into the college season. And, you know, everybody dealt with COVID shutdowns and canceled meets and altered meet schedules and new practice protocols and all these different things. And, you know, we get to, uh, we get to our, our, our men's SEC week. And um, <laughs> our men had not had an issue all year long. No problems. 48 hours before we're supposed to leave and go to our um, SEC meet, we have three guys test positive and seven guys are, are out for close contact. And I was at the women's meet and I just remember feeling so deflated. Like everything that these kids have been through, everything that they've had to face, why now? Why this? Why did this have to happen? Like, you know, we go, we do the best we can. And, and then coming back from that into the point where I really started to evaluate, can I keep moving forward with this and do it in a healthy manner? And I actually sat down with my AD and my associate AD, and we had a conversation. And my athletic director is Ray Tanner. Ray, Ray was the baseball coach here at South Carolina, won two national championships in 2010 and 20, uh, 2011, played for a third in 2012. And uh, which was awesome because in 2012, we got to be out there with them at, at Omaha and, and go to the games and stuff like that. But, um, and, and Ray said to me, he goes, you know, I, I just have a question. He said, uh, he said, can we talk for a few minutes before, you know, before we discuss con contracts or anything like that? Can, can I just, can we talk? And I said, yeah. He goes, you seem tired. My ego did kind of step in a little bit in that moment. And I said, <laughs> whatever, man, I'll tell you when I'm tired. I'm not tired. You don't tell me when I'm tired. I'll tell you when I'm tired, you know, kind of, kind of go that route. But I started, you know, I, I was like, no, nah, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. He goes, you know what I have to ask you, he said, do you have, he said, you've, you've done so many good things with the program. He said, we got to keep moving it forward. Do you have more of yourself to put in to the program to keep things rolling forward? And he goes, I don't expect an answer right now. He goes, just think about it. And so I go back and I, I call my brother on the phone <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, he told me I was tired. I'm not tired. I, I, you know, I'm tougher than that. I can get through this and blah, blah, blah. And my brother goes, but you didn't answer the question. And, and I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, are you willing to put more of yourself into this? Can you put more of yourself into this? And that one kind of stopped me in my tracks because I didn't have an immediate answer. And for the first time ever, I, I didn't know the answer to that question. And so I thought about it and I went back in and I, I, I sat down with coach Tanner and, and chance Miller. And, and I said, I, I, I think you're right. 
I think you're probably right. I don't know that I do. And maybe I do, but I'm not willing to step deeper into that space. Because if I go deeper into that space, I don't know what that does to my family. I don't know what it does to my health. Um, you know, I, I don't know. And so then the conversation became, okay, so what's next? And um, I, I think I needed that conversation and I needed that outward perspective from Chance and Coach Tanner to help me see kind of what I, I maybe I knew deep down was that, look, you're getting dangerously close to a line where you don't want to cross over that line. And that's when I, I said, okay, look, go back to my three foundations. I will not compromise my faith. I will not compromise my family. And if I take this step, I'm compromising my family. If I take this step, I'm compromising my health. And I love coaching. I love it. It's awesome. I'm not willing to do that for it. Um, there was, um, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now. There's a pitcher, University of South Carolina, a few years ago. Uh, he was drafted by the Angels, and uh, he played a couple seasons, and he he just quit. Like, he, he not quit. He, he, he decided he was going to retire. And he made the statement that being a baseball player was just a piece of who he was. It didn't define him. And I thought that was really insightful for a kid who's 25 years old to have that and I thought, you know what, that, that's really the attitude that I have to take here, that coaching is a piece of who I am. Uh, it, it doesn't define me. It's not all that I am. Um, you know, so that, that's kind of how all of this unfolded. And, and where it leads, I don't know. I, I have some opportunities, both, uh, you know, I actually have some opportunities outside the coaching world that um, allow me to consider or to, to continue to do things uh, that I think coaches excel at, and that's that's strategy and and uh, and and relationships. So I think that that could be a pretty interesting thing. Uh, but we'll we'll kind of continue to see how that unfolds. But yeah, I mean that was kind of how the story went. Man, was uh, I just had to honestly had to be I had to be honest with myself. Um, I had to be honest with um, what I was willing to do, and I had to revert back to this piece of paper here and really evaluate whether or not I was hanging on to that or if I was willing to kick that to the side, which I'm not. It's, it's such an important story, your story for coaches to hear because at a moment, and you described it beautifully. I mean, that I'm, Dan's going to have a field day with those three minutes. Um, <laughs> you described it eloquently and beautifully and, it, and it's, a, it's a hard decision to make because as coaches, we have this idea that we outwork everybody and that's what makes us successful. Yes. So number one, the first time you're hearing that from your AD, you're like, how could anyone think that I'm tired, right? We're exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> we're, I've, been, I've been tired since I was 22, Mike. It's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> we're exhausted, you know? Uh, and then to have, to have the ability after you talk to your brother and, and I know that, you know, he, he travels all over and he's, he's, he's got a, a great background in, in leadership in a lot of ways um, to give you that perspective and take pause. Um, you know, Samantha Arsenal Livingstone, who I know, you know who she is. She was a mm -hmm. great athlete, swam at Georgia. She says, uh, uh, breathe, reflect, respond. Mm -hmm. And, and you did that. Um, and, and that gave you this awareness that, you know what, I got to get back to my, to my core values. I have to reevaluate and then come to that decision. How did you lean into your family to help you throughout this process? Um, you know, it, it was funny. My, my girls, you learn real quickly that your daughters, they don't care. They, they don't, they don't care how many wins I have, um, you know, my youngest daughter, she's my, she's my swimmer and she loves the, the, the ladies on our team. Uh, they are, they are icons in her eyes. Like, you know, she, she looks at the Meredith Vays and the Emma Barksdales and the Aubrey Higgs, uh, like they're, they are next level and, and they are. Uh, but at the same token, when I come home, they want dad. Like they, they want, they want me, they don't want coach. They want me. And, and sometimes that when, especially when I was younger, that was hard to 
for me to decipher, for me to distinguish being dad and being coach. Uh, some of them, sometimes it, it rolled over, but you know, when, when we were having this conversation about girls, you know, dad may not be coaching anymore. My, my youngest daughter had a swim meet coming up and I went through and I was, I was worried this is going to devastate her. My, like Whitney lives for South Carolina football. She loves the football game. She loves the sideline stuff. She's all, and I was like, this is going to destroy her. Like, you know, if, if I, and so I'm talking to her and I said, look, I said, you know, um, I said, I could, I could take a step back and, you know, maybe I could take another coaching job that was a little less stressful or a little less in the spotlight. I said, but that's going to require you guys to move. And I said, I don't want to do that. I said, you know, you guys have always been at the mercy of my job. And I said, you know what, now it's time for you to be in the spotlight and, and I'm going to make some decisions for you. And so I'm going through this big, long spiel with my, my daughters and my 12 year old looks at me and she goes, does this mean you're going to be able to go to my swim meet this weekend? And I said, yeah, baby, it does. And she goes, awesome. And that was it. Like, but it, she didn't care. Like she just wanted dad. She, she, she wants dad to be at the swim meet. She doesn't want dad. She doesn't want coach at the swim meet. She wants dad at the swim meet. She wants to come out and be able to tell me it was the best time. And for me to give her a hug and, and that's it. Like, and so that I kind of leaned into that and I thought, okay, you know, they're good with this. And my wife is, she's always the, the voice of reason in this whole thing. And, you know, she's like, if you step away, are you going to be happy? Um, you know, what if you're not? And, and she really kind of puts all this into, into perspective and made me answer a lot of hard questions. And I think um, ultimately uh, every move we've ever made as a coach. And now, you know, any move that I'm making, you know, possibly without coaching is uh, she's just said, you're my husband. And, you know, I don't, I didn't, I didn't love you because you were a coach and, you know, I loved you because you were you. And so I'm, I'm unbelievably lucky uh, in that sense, but I, I really did lean hard on my family to get me through this. Cause you, you said something a minute ago that I think is, is really important, but it, it wasn't a hard decision. Like the, it's hard to manage. Does that make sense? Like, the decision part was easy. Dealing with the aftermath is what I struggle with. Like, you know, you, you kind of, you have this role as coach and you have the daily interactions with the athletes and those changes were a struggle for me. Um, and, you know, it, it was kind of, it was, it was made a little bit easier just that the number of people that reached out and coaches and swimmers and former athletes that, that sent text messages and, letters and I, I got a video from <laughs> from five or six of my swimmers that was uh was so good uh but you know it, it 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 really you did have to have that um that support system those people that I could lean on and and I knew that um that my family you know this was a good thing for my family this was going to allow allow me to breathe allow them to breathe you know I, I don't have to travel all the time now which is so good. Um, so I don't know. My wife, my wife would disagree with me, but I don't know. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's a, a lot on that. But um, I think I really, I did have to lean into them, but the, ultimately they wanted, they wanted me as dad and me as husband, you know, to them coaches what I did. That, that's just, that's what I did, but that's not who I was to them. So. That, that moment with your 12 year old, when you say, you know, we're going to, we're going to put the focus on you. And she says, are you going to come to my meet? I mean, you'll remember that the rest of your life. Absolutely. I will. Because that, that to her was the defining, that was it. Like if dad comes to the meet, this is awesome. Like, that's all I want because she knew so many times, Mike, I've missed so many swim meets. I've missed so many volleyball matches, theater productions um, that I'm sitting in a hotel room halfway across the country or halfway across the world. Um, and I'm missing these things. Now, don't get me wrong. All of these events that took place, I wouldn't trade them for anything in the world because it's made us all who we are. But, um, you know, it, I've got to pour into that now. You know, I, I told my 21-year-old, I said, I, I will not miss another birthday. And, and you know, those kind of promises I couldn't make before. 
I mean, I'm, I'm in the same position and, and uh, you know, it's, those are hard things, you know, those are hard things, but daddy, why can't you come to such and such? Well, you know, I'm in California that week, you know, mm -hmm. and at the end of the day, you know, do, how many times do we want to, are we willing to put ourselves in, in that position? Um, you know, one of the things that that's a challenge in, in some of this aftermath for you, and you talked about it a little bit is we thrive on being on deck mm. during practice and, and being able to interact with the athletes and, and feel like we're still part of the team. You know, mm. that, that team aspect that we loved as athletes swimming for our colleges and our clubs and, you know, representing a group of people that's going to be one of the biggest challenges for you, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, there, there's certain things that I've always done in my life that I, I've always had. Um, I've always had my, my family life, my work life. And then the third tier in this is, is, is my time, like me. And whether it's, whether it's hunting, um, I, I always have to have something that is not swimming. <laughs> like I have to have something completely away from it. And so I think, um, you know, a few years back, I started, I started training in jujitsu and it has very much that same team, uh, your gym, same thing with CrossFit. A lot of people do CrossFit, Ash does CrossFit. Um, there's that team, that community uh, that's, that's in there. And if you can get, you know, if there's something in your personal life that you can get invested in that, um, it will be difficult. And it's something that I'm still working out how I'm going to, how I'm going to kind of navigate that process. Um, but at the, at the same time, like I said, I think it's, it's a necessary step. It's something that, you know, we talk about coaches being masters of strategy. Well, this is, this is my next strategy. This is what I've got to figure out. Like, if this is where I want to get to, you know, I've got to get through point A, B, and C, how do we do that? What's that look like? So this is just another part of that strategy that I have to kind of lean into. One of the questions on my list here today was ask McGee about judo. <laughs> and the significance uh, and and healthy benefits for coaches of having hobbies outside of this craft that we pour so much time into. Uh, yeah, it's it's not it's Brazilian jiu-jitsu is what I train, and it is, it is uh, to me it, it's important. Like you've got to have you have to have distraction is not the right word, but you have to have somewhere to pour yourself. And to me, that's got to be physical activity um, because that's the only thing that's going to keep us healthy and keep our stress level down. Now, my personality uh, is a little different than most. Like um, I have this mentality of progress through pain. Like that's how, you know, that's why, you know, I, I when I was at Navy, uh, my, what I did on the side was, was I was a firefighter. And I, I wanted that challenge. I need something that is constantly going to be physically and mentally demanding um, because that pulls me away from the job side of it for a little bit. And so now with jujitsu, that man, like that man to man competition, that, that one-on-one -on -one competition, I'm going to be better than you. They're going to be better than me. Uh, learning, learning new stuff every day, being humbled every day, uh, literally every day. I go to that gym and today I spent an hour and just got beat half to death. Uh, but you, you come out of there and that progress through pain takes you to a, a next step. Um, and again, that culture at that, that gym is a, a kind of a shared suffering type culture. And that's where those bonds come from. I learned that from the military. I learned that um, through firefighting. I learned that shared suffering. Whenever you go through something, and I guess this is a lesson for coaches too, maybe. Whenever you go through something, um, that's a struggle and you come out the other side that brings a bond, right? So like you think of training trips you, you take with your team, what are the things that you think back on? It, it's not the recovery practices. Like it's never the recovery practices. It's the 31s long course off the block as fast as you can go on two minutes and half the team was throwing up before they were done. Like it, it's, it is the, the struggle that creates the bond. And so, uh, you know, those kind of cultures that, that, alongside with jujitsu is, is been something that's kind of helped me cope and uh, is on so many levels. It's good, but not just, I mean, obviously not everybody has to do that, uh, but you've got to stay active because there's, there's really no way to keep the stress of being a coach in check. 
otherwise. You know, you can try to shut it down and sit and watch a movie at night. That's, it's not, you've got to have that physical activity that's going to keep your body healthy and keep you around a long time for your family and your team. Gee, what are some things and strategies that you've done along uh, the way of your coaching career? You know, obviously you had your foundational principles, but just to create some healthy boundaries between work-life balance. Um, I think I'm a, I'm a planner. I have to, I have to have a plan. Um, and I think that's honestly just being very transparent. That's why this past year has been so difficult for me uh, because you know, as well as I do, there is no plan. Uh, 2020 was the only, was the planless year. You, you laid down a plan. It was going to change before you finished writing it down. Um, and so being a planner, I, I needed to know what, what these next steps look like. I needed to know what I could control, what I can't control, my time, what was available, um, my family, what their time was, what their time, you know, my, you know, everything. I, I needed to be able to see those things laid out. And to me, that was a big part of it is, is if you, if you really are, are, you have a plan, you have a timeline, you have a schedule uh, and you hold to that schedule. I'm not saying just be psychotic about it, but I mean, if like when I would go home at night, there were two nights a week that I would do recruiting calls the, for the rest. And, and this is the same thing for my staff. They, they kind of handle things a little bit differently, but when the, when the second practice of the day was over, work was over. Like we, we were done. And that didn't matter if practice ended at three or if practice ended at five 30 or six o'clock, we were done. We were going home. Um, and so kind of holding that. So I know when you go home, this is family time. Um, and even on those days I had recruiting calls and things like that, structuring that to where there was still time. And then, then trying to be cognizant of providing time for my wife, you know, if, if she wants to talk and then what, what that actually means that did, that doesn't, that means I listen, uh, which is kind of, which is pretty paramount. I learned that a long time ago. Like I, our conversations, when time is crammed like that, I need to shut up and I need to listen because I'm going to learn a lot more about my wife by listening than I am by talking. Um, so, you know, that, that to me is one of the best ways to do it is to really be intentional about what your day looks like. Um, and you create that time. Uh, and, and when I got to a place where I didn't feel like I could create time for my, my foundational beliefs, that's when I had to really question, okay, should I continue to do this? Right. And, and it sounds like that created a framework that allowed you to make some decisions that kept you motivated and kept you being successful along the way. Yeah. One of the things that, that I wanted to ask you, McGee, is you know, now that you have a little bit more perspective and, and you're, you're understanding, you know, what this next stage of your life might be in, in terms of new opportunities and things like that, what have you learned from coaching outside of, you know, the great relationships that you had? But what have you learned from coaching that you think you'll take into the next phase of your life? Uh, <laughs> being a coach qualifies you to do pretty much just about anything. Um, and, and I've learned this in the last few weeks by talking with people that aren't coaches. Um, you know, when, when you think about the scope of everything that you do, Mike, it, they, you, you do the job of 10 Fortune 500 companies all wrapped under the, the Victor umbrella. And when you look at that, I don't think coaches appreciate that enough. I think we feel like we're coaches and that's all we can ever do. And that's not true. Like the things that you do, budget management. And look, one of the most valuable things that you can be as a coach is, is, is someone who thinks outside the box. And you're a master of that. Like you're really good at that. And that is ultimately one of the most valuable um, constructs right now that, that businesses are looking for. Problem solvers, people that think outside the box. There's nobody more creative with problem solving than coaches because that's 90%, especially club coaches. You got 60 kids and you've got to put them in and all of a sudden, 10 minutes before practice, somebody comes out and goes, by the way, we've got water aerobics. You've got three lanes. You've got to, you have to be someone who thinks outside the box, box and can work on the fly. And so I think, I think understanding that what we do as coaches, um, the skills that we 
accumulate open doors. Now, that doesn't mean you just run and get out of coaching. That's not what I'm saying. I, I'm just saying that I think a lot of times we miss that. We, you know, we just think we coach on deck, we write our workouts and we move on. Um, and that coaching, and you know this as a head coach and uh, especially, you know, coaching a, a head coach of a club or a head coach of a college program, the coaching part of it is, is a, honestly a, a fraction, small part of what we do. Um, there's so much dealing there, you know, in, in college coaches, there's, there's politics and club coaches, there's dealing with boards and parents and, uh, and then college, there's recruiting and clubs, there's travel and there's coaching, you know, anybody from eight years old to 18 years old uh, and, and the, the wide variety of personalities that you have to have as a coach to interact and be effective with each of those age groups. Like there, there's so much value in what we do. Uh, in the real world that I think a lot of times we don't understand until it's time to take a look and really step into it. But man, coaching has laid the foundation. You can do just about whatever you want to from there. So many skills that you acquire, you know, over time. And uh, I talk about this with David Arlock all the time too, just doing some of this stuff, like uh, the skills that you pick up along the way, it's, it's pretty incredible in a life of coaching. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you've had the, the foresight to, to work with some great professionals that have helped your team. And uh, one of them is Jeff Raker. Mm -hmm. um, Jeff, you know, has also worked with my daughter's team at Denison and Greg yeah. Perini. Um, what, what inspired you to reach outside of the program, think outside the box and bring an executive leadership coach on deck to help your team? Well, it's something I've been thinking about doing. And uh, when I hired Mike Simpson, uh, Mike was the head coach at Gardner-Webb for 19 years. And it was kind of a, a very similar situation to Mark Bernardino. Um, I looked at Mike as someone who was going to come in and have an immediate impact on our program. Mike had a history of coaching sprinters. Um, we had kind of gotten this uh, stigma of being a, a distance-based program. And that, you know, obviously we had a lot of success with our distance groups. Um, and then, you know, I wanted to take that and, and try to bring this other side up to speed. And I said, okay, I'm going to go get Mike. Well, Mike comes in, leaves Gardner-Webb, comes to South Carolina. And, um, you know, we start talking about things we want to do. And, and he was like, hey, you know, you're talking about this. I want to introduce you to this guy. Mike had worked with Jeff Raker at Gardner-Webb. And Jeff had worked with multiple sports at Gardner-Webb. And so... I reached out to Jeff and, and the conversation started and I knew right away, I was like, okay, this guy's a difference maker. Like he, he, he's going to help us grow as a team. He's going to help us learn each other, which that was one of the most valuable things ever is, is how he can help you interpret a person's personality and find that way to connect with them um, and know how to interact with them. Like, you know, he, you can identify the kids that, you know, I got some kids on my team that I could just blow up and I could, you know, you're not getting it done. You're not doing this. You're not doing this. And they would look back at me and go, I'll show you. And on we'd go. I have some kids that if I took that same approach, they're shutting down and they'll never listen to me again. And what Jeff did was he helped me identify these kids before those, those opportunities ever showed up. And so I knew how to address each individual. I knew how to best connect with the team. Um, he worked with our staff and how to work together as a staff um, and to move forward as a staff. So he was a, a very valuable asset. Uh, and I highly would recommend him to any coaches sitting here listening right now, individual or staff, uh, either way. Uh, I worked with him individually. Kevin Swander, my associate head coach, worked with him individually. Mike worked with him uh, all the time. You know, and I think that environment um, that he kind of helped us foster kept taking us forward and, and uh, just brought a, a new way to think about leadership, you know, leadership through questions. He's getting ready uh, to do a, a webinar, I guess, for the CSCAA convention. And one of the topics is leadership through questions. Uh, and it's brilliant when you listen to it. So I absolutely, I highly recommend him. He, he's a difference maker, can help you, can help you see um, really where your weaknesses are as a leader and what you need to pour into uh, to be more effective. And coaching or not coaching, he's somebody that I will continue to use uh, to, to make me better. 
Uh, one, one of the, absolutely, I agree with all of that. One of the things that he, he really helped me with is he helped me understand like, wait a second, Mike, this is not a team issue. This is not an athlete issue. This is a Mike Murray issue that we got to spend some time on. You know, like he'll I didn't want to hear that when he told me that. I, I was like, oh, whatever, man. It's not mine. I can't be me. It's yeah. Not- <laughs> he'll he'll humble you real quick with that. So absolutely, I, I agree. All right, McGee, we're going to some quick fire questions now. Sure. All right. You're a young coach, you know, your first couple years at, at SC, you, ta- you talked about this a little bit, but here I am, there's Dave Marsh, there's Greg Troy, you know, I've, I've got these Titans, you know, Jack, everybody. What are you saying to yourself, you know, uh, <laughs> in the, and, and looking at the SEC and like, I got to get these pieces to get up to here. What, what are you saying to yourself in those moments in your first couple years? Well, I think there was a, a level of naivety too that that I was like, you know, um, going into this, my first thought was, don't say anything stupid in front of these guys. That was my first thought. Don't make a fool of yourself. Um, and so I think my first coaching, I think my first SEC head coaches meeting, I think I might have said three words, and one of them was present. So <laughs> I, uh, I I don't know, but you know, I think going into it, my my first thing was okay. Um, in the SEC, the reality is it's easier to move up in the NCAA than it is to move up in the SEC. Uh, the year our, our men finished 14th, 13th uh, at NC2As, I think it was 2015, 2016, um, we were sixth in the SEC. And, and so that conference, going in with the, the understanding that this is what you're up against, you, like, you have to be very clear. You have to be honest with yourself again. And say this is where we are. What does the what does what do my bosses want from me? And you know they were clear. They said I want you know I want you to focus on NCAA's bringing those directors cup points, which we did. Um, I think 20, 2016, we brought in ninety nine points uh, for the directors cup between our men's and women's program. And the only team that did that was women's basketball, and that was the year we won our national championship. Um, and so we we focused on that, but the understanding that. Um, you're not going to come in in this conference and go from 10th in the conference to first in two years. You, you've got to set your, you've got to set your five-year plan in motion and you've got to start to climb the ladder. Um, and, and that's what, that's what we did. But yeah, I mean, going back to the, the first meeting, these are guys that I always looked at as just superhuman. Um, and I, I tell a story about when I was younger Steve Youngbluth and I, uh, Steve's the, the associate head coach down with Florida men, uh, where we went to dinner one night and it was, it was David Marsh, um, Salo, John Urbanchek, and I don't even know how Steve and I ended up at this table, but we went to dinner with them and I just kind of hooked onto them and went with them. I, I knew David and um, they were talking, they were having a conversation about um, whether you know, it, it, with elite athletes, do you, do you continue to develop the catch or develop the kick first? What leads? And I remember sitting at this table and listening to these guys and just thinking, I can't, you know, I was writing notes on a napkin. I borrowed a pen from a waiter and was taking notes on a napkin. And then all of a sudden, here I am in a conference with a lot of these guys that I had the utmost respect for, the Matt Kreditches, the, the Jack Bowerleys, the Greg Troys all of these guys that I've always looked up to. And, and my, you know, like I said, my first thought was just don't, don't say anything stupid. That's your first victory and then build from there. But those, those men now are some of my closest friends um, and, and will remain that way uh, forever. Uh, They, we, you know, that, that was one of the things that I think has changed about the SEC without going on too much about this, but the SEC used to be cutthroat coaches hated each other. Uh, and, and that started to evolve. I, I think the SEC coaches now are extremely, they're, they're great friends. Um, you know, so I, I, I feel, I consider myself unbelievably lucky to have had the opportunity to coach alongside, um, the men and women in that conference. What do you think about the future of NCAA swimming and diving? I think it's very, very uncertain. And that, that upsets me. <clears throat> deeply 
Uh, I think we've lost sight of what college athletics is supposed to be about. I think we've let the almighty dollar take charge. Um, and I think it's gonna come at the expense of some of our, um, I, I don't wanna just say swimming, but college, athlete, college athletes, some of the best athletes and best people are gonna lose opportunities. Um, I, you need to watch real closely what goes on. I don't know if people are paying attention to the Austin case. Uh, I don't know if people are paying attention to all this stuff going on with name, image, and likeness. Uh, but if some of these things that are, if they pass, Olympic sports are probably going to go away. And, and that's a shame. Like I said, we've lost sight of what college sports is supposed to be. Um, it's my hope that there's somebody, there's somebody with enough decision-making power who has the courage to step up and go, we have to stop this madness. Say whatever you want to about athletes being paid. Um, we've seemed to have disregarded the value of a scholarship these days. And people that know the inside workings of college athletics, people that have no idea talk about how much money all these athletic departments have. All that money that you think athletic departments have gets pushed back into facilities. Um, and again, we know we know what what pulls the carriage. We know that football is where the money goes. But every college coach in the country will tell you, especially Power Five, football drives drives. And if football is not successful, we suffer. Um, well, that's going one step farther now. If they go to paying these players, they're not talking about paying paying swimmers, Mike. They're not talking about paying golfers. They're not talking about paying tennis players. And the bad thing is, is they're pitching it to these athletes like we're talking about paying everyone. And that's not the case. So all the athletes are on board. When they say to an athlete, don't you guys want to make money? Well, of course they do. Everybody wants to make money. That's not what's going to happen. Uh, a very select few are going to be able to make money off of their name and their face. Everybody else is going to suffer along along that trip. And I think we have to come to that reality and somebody has to have the courage to step up and say, we got to stop this. I really appreciate that honest take. And, and from somebody who spent so much time in the business, you certainly have an understanding of it. Excited about the ISL and the potential for the ISL? Man, uh, I think that changes the way we look at swimming. And, you know, at, at first I was like, oh God, are we, is, is this gonna, you know, we've, we've been talking about this. Is this, I watched the first couple of meets and I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> it's like you, you bring that, that team aspect to swimming at a professional level. You, you, they, they, they hone in on the teams, the energy from the athletes on the side, cheering for their teammates, the point scoring, the strategy behind it. Uh, it brings a whole different level. And it's something that I do believe they'll continue to evolve. Um, and I, I, look, I love it. I, you know, we, uh, some of our athletes have had the opportunity um, to compete. Uh, Brandon Almeida, Tom Parabonio, Emma Barksdale. You know, we've had a lot of athletes that have, have competed in the ISL uh, and, and they love it. They, they enjoy it. They love the camaraderie. They love being a part of, of those teams and being able to keep that college feel to now their professional swimming career. For sure. For sure. We had fun following it this year in, in our house too. It was awesome. Yeah. Um, this is a question I've been excited to ask you all day. Power shift, West Coast to East Coast. You got Virginia and NC State now. Cal, Stanford, not one, two. Uh, what do you think about that? God, I, I don't know. I, I think it's hard to tell based on this year. Right. I can tell you this. Todd DeSorbo and Braden Holloway, they get a lot of attention. They don't get enough. They are really, really good at what they do. Uh, and and that, is not, that is not to say that Greg Meehan or Dave Durden do not, because they obviously do. But what I'm saying is we have young coaches coming up. I'm old enough now that I can still, I can call Todd DeSorbo young. But we have young coaches coming up that are creative. They, are, they, they relate. Um, they know how to build fast swimmers. They know how to build good people. Um, I don't know that there's a shift, but I will tell you this, the East Coast is going to be hard to beat for the next few years. Um, that, that's, that's my opinion. Uh, and I think, you, you, you know, you may, you, you, there always be a West Coast California draw from a recruiting standpoint, but uh, 
Todd and Braden and these guys, they, they seem to be overcoming that, you know, Matt Credich at, at Tennessee, he, you know, he, they bring people in there and Matt can, he can take an average athlete and make them world-class in no time. Yeah. I, I don't know. East coast, maybe. Um, but I think it's hard to, it's hard to, to say that off of this year because everybody was held under so many different uh, protocols and regulations and um, you know, California being under strict COVID rules that made everything difficult for, for those men and women out there. So, uh, but that takes absolutely nothing away from Virginia, uh, nothing away from NC State. What they did was phenomenal. How about Lars Jorgensen too with that Kentucky? Oh, uh, I'm telling you what, one of the biggest things, and I get on to, uh, to Joel and Greg Earhart at, at College Swimming all the time. I was so excited a few years back to hear Lars Jorgensen talk about coaching backstroke. And that year they had decided to go to more of a Ted talk type thing. So they gave him like 12 minutes and he got, he started talking and his time was up. And I remember that's the only time I've ever been sitting in a CSCAA like talk where I was like, no, you can't, we can't just, we got to let him keep going. Like he's got he's to keep talking. Um, Lars has built a powerhouse. Uh, his, his women were so, so good at SECs, man. Um, and, I, and he's such a, he's, he's very deserving, such a nice guy, such a great coach. So, um, yeah, he's definitely, definitely on that list. Uh, McGee, what do you think, Tokyo, does it take a sub-21 second performance in the men's 50 free to win the gold medal? Without question. I love it. Does that eight-minute barrier go down for the first time in the women's 800 free history? I'm going to say yes. Well, I mean, just because if I, if I go on record as saying yes, I'm going to totally invest in that race when I watch it in Tokyo, man. I, I, like, I'm just going to be all in on it. But, yeah, look, I, I mean, uh, the way swimming is going, yeah, I mean, the, the new things that we're coming up with and different ways to train, um, absolutely. I, I think eight minutes goes down. And I, I, I honestly, I, 20 point, I think that's – I might even go out on a limb and say – maybe 20 point to make the medal stand. We've had, we've had a couple guests say that too. So that's right on par. Um, McGee, we, you and I could geek out on this all day. <laughs> I, I, I so appreciate your time. This episode of Coach's Corner is going to be available tonight or early tomorrow morning. We'll get it out to everybody. I really appreciate your story, the perspective that you shared. And, uh, you know, you, you have such a unique story now in, in this next phase of your life. And, I think it must feel so good to be in the position you're in right now. You're, you're very comfortable in the decisions that you've made. I am. I am. And I, I think uh, just keeping that, keeping that happiness and keeping that balance. And um, you know, when you're stressed, go, uh, go to the mats and hit a, a jujitsu training session and, and, and come back and hang out with your family. That, that's kind of where I am right now. So uh, life is good, man. Uh, you know, my, my grandfather used to tell me life, is, uh, it, it's a good day above ground. That was, that was what he always told me. So uh, life's good. We're happy. We're smiling. Uh, there'll be days that I will wake up and painfully miss uh, swimming. Uh, but I, when I look at the trade-offs, I, I, I will have zero regrets. Well, listen, man, I appreciate our friendship first and foremost, and I appreciate you taking the time today with me and uh, looking forward to getting this episode out with everybody. Awesome, man. I appreciate it more than you'll ever know. And uh, hopefully we can continue as we get close to the Olympics. Let's do this again. And let's really put some pressure on me with that eight minute, uh, that eight minute call. Okay. <laughs> Will do, man. All right, buddy. Thank you.